Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. Hello and welcome to the 1 Peter 5 Podcast. This is Steve. We are on episode 35. Hard to believe we've produced 35 episodes in less than two years. So listen, this one's going to be a little bit different. And let me give you the history on it. Um, Almost two years ago, not quite, about a year and a half, uh, September of 2014, We were anticipating the beginning of the first portion of the two-part synod on marriage and family. And at the time, we had an inclination. The Casper proposal was on the table. We knew some of what was going into it, and we were trying to anticipate what to expect and what Catholics should believe and and how they should react to what was going to be coming out. Um, So to that end, I contacted my friend, Dr. Michael Cirilla, who is a professor of systematic theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, my alma mater. Dr. Cirilla and I did not know each other when I was in school. Uh, We actually met and came into contact through our our mutual pursuit of an understanding of the implications of this papacy. And he discovered my writing online and reached out to me to support the efforts that I was making to come to a better understanding of these things. And we had a number of conversations. And over time, uh, he became an integral part of what we do, sort of behind the scenes. Dr. Cirilla, when we founded the nonprofit institution behind 1 Peter 5, we are a 501c3, he agreed graciously to join our board of directors. Um, So he is an influence behind the scenes. Um, He is often a theological consultant for me when I have a question about some issue that I'm wrestling with. Um, And he's a friend. He's a friend, and he and his wife, Laura, actually just this past uh, October became the godparents of my youngest child. So our collaboration has gone from intellectual to real friendship, uh, and I trust his judgment very much. He's a man well-qualified in his positions. So we recorded this podcast again September 2014, and it was all about the limits on papal infallibility and how Catholics are to respond to troubling, confusing, difficult things coming out of a papacy. And it was a good podcast, uh, longer than usual. We we had a quite long freeform discussion. I think the full recording is about an hour and a half. Um, And it was very in-depth, and there was some very good stuff there. And at the end... I turned off the microphone and I said to him, Mike, do you really want me to publish this podcast? Because you are a professor of theology at a mainstream Catholic university. And I don't know. I don't know if this is a good idea because you're not saying anything that's wrong. You're absolutely faithful to an authentic theological understanding of the church and, and the limits on papal authority. But But at the time, in 2014, it wasn't like it is right now after the release of this apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. 
people were afraid to say the kinds of things that are being said now. People were afraid to be critical of of the Pope without looking as though they were some kind of state of a contest or schismatic. And that's really not the case. Um, you know, we are an organization that loves the church, loves the institution of the papacy, and is faithful to every legitimate exercise of magisterial authority. Uh, and that's why I wanted to talk to him about it is because I wanted to know what are the legitimate exercises of magisterial authority? How do we understand what our obligations are? Where do we have to give our assent? So we talked about it and he slept on it. And the next day we talked again and he had spoken to some colleagues and we decided, you know what? The world's maybe not ready for this yet. Um, and, and, and I really look to me, it's super important to know that these guys who have a solid lock on the church's teachings and traditions are, are in a position where they can, they can teach students the things that they know that they aren't getting. I have a theology degree from Steubenville. I never learned the kinds of things that Dr. Cirilla and I talk about um, because there was sort of just this, this pedagogy of the now, you know, it's everything 1960 and later is what they teach you. They don't teach you what the church used to teach. At least they didn't when I was getting my degree. Um, so it's important to me to not jeopardize these people. But about a week ago, uh, just before the apostolic exhortation came out, I got a call from Dr. Cirilla and he said, look, it's time. Let's, let's get that podcast out of the, out of mothballs and, and we need to put it out there because people need to hear it. And so this, this podcast that has lived in the archives underground now, uh, for the better part of two years is being released for the first time to you for your consideration, for your edification, education, um, and and I ask you to please pray for Dr. Cirilla and professors like him because there are many of them around the country, and and I have the the privilege of hearing from some of them, and they're all working diligently to try to understand how how they can defend the faith in the position that they're in, which can often be a very delicate and, and sensitive thing, particularly for, for professors who have taken the oath of fidelity to the magisterium and have a mandatum to teach. Uh, they need <laughs> their oath of fidelity is to the entire magisterium, not just to the present papacy, uh, but it's a double-edged sword. You know, these guys can wind up in trouble with their local bishops simply for speaking up according to their duty and obligation. So pray for them, pray for their, their courage, their protection, uh, and pray that more of them will come forward. So without further ado, I will present to you the content of that podcast. My guest today is Dr. Michael Cirilla. He is a professor of dogmatic and systematic theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, my alma mater. He is married with six children and a very valuable resource for questions that I have about theology and a contributor as well to 1 Peter 5. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Svilla to the show. Thank you for being on. Thanks, Steve. So now that I have an actual captive theologian, there's a lot of things that are going on in the church that are kind of giving people the heebie-jeebies, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And obviously a lot of this in anticipation of the Synod uh, on Marriage and Family, which is going to be beginning in October. Uh, the dates I have are the 5th through the 19th at the Vatican, um, in which you know the Church is going to be considering uh, the 
question, among other things, but it's the big one, of whether or not those who are divorced and remarried may, after a period of penance, be readmitted to the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist. Um, that's the thing that's causing a lot of controversy. I want to talk about it, but before we get to it, I kind of want to step back and look at sort of what's going on with some of the key players and and really with the Pope. So Pope Francis has been a lightning rod of controversy. I think it's, it's fair to say uh, since his election no in 2013. And a lot of that happens through sort of indirect means. I mean, there are definitely things that he says that people say, what does that mean? And then, you know, you get this laundry list of it's a translation error or the media misreported it or whatever. But, but a lot of stuff that he does is also, it's back channel stuff. It's the phone calls that he makes privately to people. It's the things that he says to, you know, the ecumenical gatherings that he's meeting with. And then they report back and they say, hey, he said such and such a thing. And it, and it concerns people. And I think with good reason, but I'd like to talk to you, you know, from the perspective of somebody who's immersed in the theology of the church and specifically in dogmatics and systematics, the rules, the regulations, this is what we have to believe. What do you see is, is the problem with the kind of statements that he's making? Well, as a point of entry, let me, let me share this with you. I think you, you're spot on Steve in your analysis of uh, his playing the role of a lightning rod and a provocateur as it were. Uh, last calendar year, 2013, uh, in fact, uh, <clears throat> Yeah, it was in the spring semester, uh, after, soon after he issued his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, uh, where it includes a number of statements that are critical of free market economy mm-hmm. and that, that smack of socialism. Right. Um, our <laughs> uh, uh, my colleagues in the business and economics department were very concerned <laughs> about these statements for understandable right. reasons. Well, sure. In fact, um, the faith is is something that plays a role in their pedagogy, though they're strict economists or <clears throat> uh, accountants, and they teach their students the craft very well. Uh, <clears throat> they also include uh, Catholic perspectives on on social uh, teaching with respect to the economy. So, Centesimus Honest from JP two. Uh, that encyclical where he praises free market economies as providing a great, great resource and an intrinsically good resource when guided by the Christian faith for human flourishing and the flourishing of society. And so they saw Francis's statements in Evangelii Gaudium in radical tension with that, so much so that they called a panel discussion together and it was attended by upwards of 300 students packed into a small uh, conference room. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and it was a panel of seven of us, four uh, uh, faculty from business and three from theology, three or four from theology. And uh, the, the issue was how are we supposed to understand what he's saying here? It seems to be intention, if not contradiction, with the past magisterial statements about about the free market economy. So there's certainly, yes, it's a lot of what he does and says causes consternation. That's in the realm of social teaching and economics. But in that very same encyclical, for example, um, you don't have to get this indirectly through the media or translations or whatever. 
But right there in Evangelii Gaudium, <clears throat> he has a whole section <clears throat> on fraternal charity where he says unequivocally that uh, love of neighbor is the greatest commandment, mm. which uh, to even the non-expert ear uh, sounds like it's clank, it's clanky, it's clanky, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Because people know the greatest commandment, Christ said very directly, is love of God above all else. And the second is love of neighbor. So there are things like that that are very hard to deal with uh, theologically, pastorally, personally, etc. And one or two times, I mean, everybody misspeaks. I do it all the time. It's it's this sort of aggregate of these these gaffes constantly seem to happen, and they all seem to follow along the same ideological axis. That's right. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a good point, and that's the meta point. That's the overall point. I have to. I can't resist. I have to t- say that I think you're being very generous here, which is a nice sentiment. But a post-synodal apostolic exhortation is a well thought out piece that you right. compose, you write. It's not speaking off the cuff. And so a lot of us were wondering, where is the papal theologian? They have an in-house theologian, a Dominican, mm. uh, who usually vets papal writings that are from his magisterial chair. This right? is not something that I think most people know, by the way. I didn't. Yeah, right. So we're going, where the heck was uh, was a Dominican theologian on this? I think he was probably excluded from the process, or if he right. wasn't, he, his uh, input was not regarded in certain key areas. But... Uh, but yeah, I think overall you're right that uh, there's a kind of added, I, I, people don't want to make this conclusion. They're they're afraid to say, look, the guy consistently speaks in terms that lean socialistic, right? Mm, right. That's in terms of the uh, economic teachings, social mm-hmm. teachings. But there's other issues too. Um, in in his homilies, he'll uh, occasionally deploy, and homilies may be more off the cuff than a, a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. Of 48,000 words, no less. Right, I mean, right. It's, I mean it's, a, it's a voluminous amount of information. That, no doubt. Yeah. And a homily may be more kind of spontaneous, perhaps. I know he, he's gone off script on his homilies or off the, off the printed copy of his homily. But uh, some of his homilies have smacked of, uh, of problems like uh, a homily in June of 2013 where he says sin is in Christ's soul, that he's making an overall good point, which is that Christ, as Paul says, becomes sin for us, right, so that we may become the very holiness of God. Mm -hmm. But but when you say that there's sin in Christ's body and there's sin in his soul, then you're making a metaphysical claim, at least that's how it sounds to a dogmatic, systematic theologian. It sounds like it's a metaphysical claim. And of course, if you're saying there's sin in somebody's soul, that means they're they're either guilty of an actual sin, or there's or they they have a, the stain of original sin. Right. There really isn't a third option. Now, maybe this is unfair to to say because he he may not have been a t- trying to attain that degree of precision. Um, but what what to do with that? Right. What do people? How do? You, how should you react to that? How should you react to the homily a couple weeks ago? in Santa Marta, where he <clears throat> said on a Saturday in a homily that, uh, as Paul says, so he's misquoting Paul, it could be a blunder, but he says, as Paul says, uh, I boast of my sins, but in fact, Paul says, I boast of my weaknesses. So there are things like that that make... And uh, they're little distinctions, they're the kind of things, in my opinion, that the average Catholic listening you know, is going to hear it and be like, oh yeah, that sounds familiar, that is what St. Paul 
said, you know, but it's not. Yeah. It's actually not what he said, but it sort of affixes a different meaning in your mind when you read it or when you hear it. And, and you don't really know. I mean, even if it kind of tickles the back of your mind and says, hey, something's not right about that, you're not really sure what's off. But I think enough of that kind of statement coming from the Holy Father, you know, it, it begins to create this sort of divergence uh, from the true Catholic narrative. Yeah, so I think you're right. For, for, for an ordinary Catholic who's not a geeky, dogmatic theologian, who's not having to deal with this on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't even register. But sure. for, for dogmatic theologians who teach on these issues and have to research and publish on them, it makes our head explode. <laughs> well, I mean, understand. Well, how, how do we process this? Yeah. Now, for the well-educated non-theologians, who, many of whom are apologists or Catholic authors, um, I can't consider you a theologian, but in any event, uh, that's, I guess we could talk about it some other time. Uh, you don't always <laughs> I have, have some of the training. I, I think that I, you know, I have like a, like a purple belt in theology. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of people who do catch on to some of these statements and, and that are troubling, again, that are not filtered through hearsay or media spin, but directly publicized through the Vatican News Service or through Vatican Radio website. Um, th- there's different reactions, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Some reactions are, are, there's a kind of denial. I think people want to say, he doesn't really mean it that way. You're being too harsh. Right. A lot of ad hominem responses come out to those of us who say, oh, I have a problem with him saying this. But you're you not faithful. To, yeah, no, right? you have to give him the benefit of the doubt, and we have to, you know, assume that you know he meant this. And 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 I agree that to an extent, I mean, that's what charity demands of anybody. No doubt, no doubt. That's Any right. time I've ever been, in, you know, sitting in a parish and listening to homily, and a priest who's solid, you know, he makes a misstep and he says something that's obviously a mistake. Everybody does that. No doubt, that's right. But. But again, it has to do with the consistency. I mean, one of the big ones you didn't even mention is this idea of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And oh, I forgot about that. But I mean, yes. that's a big one where you say that it's not that Christ really, I mean, I, I'm not going to quote him because I can't. I mean, it would be a paraphrase. But he insinuated that the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes was not an actual event, but the miracle was in the sharing of the food. I mean, it was, did I misread that? No, that's correct. In fact, that when it happened, I scrutinized it, I looked at the text carefully. I don't have the quote memorized, so I can't quote it from memory either. But uh, but you're correct. And the thing that's really stark and shocking about that was when he issued that state, when he made that statement, I think, again, that was in a homily or maybe a Wednesday catechesis, uh, catechetical address. One of my students in uh, Theology of Christ class, and this is probably unrelated, but it was just concomitant or coincidental, said, because we're talking about Christ's miracles, and she asked, are we as Catholics required by the church to believe that Christ performed miracles? And I said, yes. And she said, show me. And I said, I'll, I'll tell you next class. <laughs> so then I, because it wasn't right on the top of my head, it was right. just such an obvious thing, right? Where, where does the church require it? So I dug it up. And as I dug into it, and believe me, this relates to your bringing up of the miracle of the loaves question, okay? Um, Vatican one in Dei Filius, a, a, a document on faith and reason, very very unequivocally teaches, and this is an infallible uh, dogmatic council, so it's binding, a definitive teaching, that Christ most certainly performed miracles. At that time in the 1860s, the, the society in the West had suffered for at least a century 
of thinkers like David Hume in philosophy and others who argue that miracles are not possible, miracles are logical contradictions. And so Vatican I is dealing with this radical rationalism that claims that faith is irrational and therefore false. Um, but then in the current catechism of the Catholic Church issued in 94 or thereabouts, maybe 92, uh, very unequivocally repeats and quotes Vatican I, Dei Filius, that Christ performed miracles, and then they adduce as an example the miracle of the multiplication of loaves, not as, a, as an event of sharing, but as a miracle, strictly speaking, which is an event, the effects of which can only be attributable to divine causality. Sharing is something you can do without a special help of grace. You right. can just right. share right. your right. sandwich with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a problem. And, and, and so some people kind of react and turn off and, and uh, you and I have talked about this in the past. It seems like an incipient or creeping uh, ultramontanism of some sort where the idea is whatever a pope does, whatever they say, is somehow inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit. Sure. Therefore, it's beyond criticism. Yep. And, I mean, Cardinal Newman warned about this in his letters to his bishop, you know, leading up to Vatican I and the promulgation of the doctrine of papal infallibility. I mean, he was really concerned that this was exactly what would happen, is people would think everything that the Pope said requires assent. And, obviously, there are, there are limits to papal infallibility. And so, I mean, I want to talk about that, and I, and I want to make it clear, I mean, to people who are listening who haven't you know, turned us off by now because we're offending you, I hope we're not, because I think this is not a discussion that people need to have. People are afraid to have this conversation because they feel like they're doing something wrong by by giving voice to the questions that they're feeling inside about the things that they're hearing from the Pope and why does it bother me and, and am I bad for thinking this way? And I, I'm, there is a reason why these questions need to be asked, and that's you know because what the Pope is doing, you know, he he is sort of altering not doctrinally but through praxis the census fidei, and whether he means to be doing that or not. We need to be on guard and make sure we understand what the church really teaches about all this stuff so that if he says something that's off, we're not misled. So I want to just kind of throw that out there as we continue through this conversation, that there is a point to this. We're not just piling on. That's, but, that's right. And yeah. actually, it's a good point now to interject another qualification to our comments. And that is <clears throat> that uh, there's a whole lot of good stuff that he said. You know, There's plenty of things that he has said that are very decent articulations, uh, sometimes punchy and powerful articulations of the, the truth of Christ, of our faith, uh, of Our Lady, of morals. So, you know, it's not like, uh, yeah, I think people might get the impression we're piling on or even ignoring the fact that there's a whole lot of good stuff. I mean, I don't know about quantitatively. Maybe quantitatively most of the stuff is good, but all it takes is a handful of a very problematic things sure. to to cause a situation that we have to look at it frankly. And I and think it's fair to without say without denying the good things. So yeah, we're not gonna deny the good things. Yeah. We love I know that you feel this way, but but I won't speak for you. Uh, but I love him and I pray for him in the rosary every day and, and our family does as well. And uh, you have to pray so you know but lo- but love doesn't mean right that you that you accept uncritically <laughs> No. Everything your beloved does or says. Yeah. Okay, sometimes exactly. love demands um, 
a response of disagreement. It's a misunderstanding or, or of, 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 sure. of 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 inquiry, if not mm-hmm. disagreement, at least. Well, what 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 what? Why did you say this? What's going on? Yeah, and I and I also think that I mean it's it's fair to point out that when a pope says something that is, um, you know, sort of compatible with what the church has always said, it's somewhat unremarkable. Um, That's right. That, you know, easy what, to overlook. Yeah. What becomes remarkable is when he says something that is in some way jarring, some way novel or innovative, or develops doctrine in a new and clearer way that helps us all to understand something better. I mean, it can be positive uh, in, in the sense that it's remarkable, but it can also be, hey, whoa, you know, he said this thing. Does he really mean, you know, what it sounds like it means? And And there's a reason why those are the things that we tend to hone in on because – you know, if he's just, I mean, how often do you go, you know, after you heard a good homily at your parish and go tell everybody about it? It's like, yeah, the priest did his job. He said what we believe, and that's awesome, and I'm glad, and that's why I go to Mass there. That's but, right. But, I mean, you don't go and tell everybody about it. But the minute something's off, you're like, yeah, my priest said that, you know, Christ wasn't truly divine. I'm pretty sure that's what he was saying, and I think that's Arian, you know. So, I mean, that's when Or, that... or my priest said that the miracle of the loaves was actually sharing. Right. But in this case, it's right. our Pope who said it. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit because Father Thomas Kosick, you know, who is a noteworthy author uh, and a good priest, and I actually knew him when he was a seminarian many, many years ago. Um, but, I mean, he wrote for us an article about the limits of papal infallibility. Um, but, I mean, I'd like to hear from you because papal infallibility is not this universal blanket thing. And, and being able to distinguish between personal papal opinion – and something over which the Pope has authority to which we must give assent is a, is a sort of tricky proposition. Yeah, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so in Luke's Gospel, <laughs> we'll do this quickly in, in, in a targeted fashion. Mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, after the Last Supper, uh, prophecies and foretells to Peter and the disciples that Satan has sought to sift you like wheat um, and that you will fall and betray me. But I have prayed for you, Peter, Jesus says, so that when you return, meaning when he repents and comes back to Christ after he betrays Christ, back to the quote, that your faith may not fail. And then, with his unfailing faith, go strengthen the brethren. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the idea of papal infallibility comes right from the mouth of our Lord, whose prayer is that Peter, and of course through him his successors, will not fail, infallible, when acting in a certain fashion in his role, principal role as Pope, which is to strengthen the faithful in the deposit of faith and morals. Um, And there's a lot of other biblical uh, sources for this as well, but that's the principal one, and Vatican I, in its doctrine on papal infallibility, the dogma it pronounces in the document Pastor Eternus, cites that, as well as other passages. Okay. So the doctrine is this, that when the Pope speaks, you know this, ex cathedra, Mm -hmm. that he is preserved by a special charism promised by Christ to Peter and his successors to to speak truthfully, that that what he'll speak ex cathedra is without error. But here are the criteria for an ex cathedra statement, and they're, they're strict. That first of all, he has to be speaking about a matter of faith and morals not a matter, or or a matter that's directly related to faith and morals, okay? Not who's going to win the World Cup or something like that, 
okay, or or not about what economic system might be better than another. I mean, that's what that's, I was gonna. That's what I was gonna ask. I mean, there could be moral actors within an economic system of certain obligations, but not that a specific economic system is what the church prescribes. I mean, there's yeah, and it, it gets a little nuanced because sure. that doesn't mean that a pope is not competent to speak on those things, and sometimes he could even speak on them ex cathedra, but when and only when. The matter related to a particular economic system, like socialism, mm-hmm. uh, which is intrinsically immoral, as popes have clearly taught, uh, deals directly with the deposit of morals mm-hmm. or faith. Mm-hmm. But in the case of socialism, it's morals. Right. Okay, so that's one thing. It has to be on the matter of a matter of faith and morals, not discipline or governance or something else. Um, and secondly, he has to be speaking in his role as supreme pastor of the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. And third, he has to, ma- and, and you know that by either the words he uses or the type of document that's issued or the addressees to which he delivers the document. Okay. And then third, he has to make it clear, it has to be clear somehow uh, that he is pronouncing this teaching definitively. Uh, the common formulae for that would be things, words like these. We solemnly declare and define as a dogmatically revealed truth right. that dot dot dot. Yeah. Um, so and you see those in certain papal bulls from certain. I mean, from yeah. certain councils, and immediately it gets your attention because you're like, "Whoa, he's he's not messing around here. He wants us to know what's going on." That's right. And in fact, there's a debate about how many infallible papal statements have been made. Right. Um, which are distinct from conciliar infallible statements because that's an exercise of the infallible magisterium of the entire College of Bishops united with the Pope mm-hmm. as their head in an extraordinary synod or council. Mm-hmm. But with the Pope alone, some will be minimalists and say there's only been two, Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, Pius IX and Pius XII respectively. But, but as a matter of fact, um, I think there's been a whole lot more than just two. Uh, but it doesn't matter. That's kind of academic. Who cares? The point is those are the criteria, okay? And then there's some distinctions that have to be made. So the criteria for infallibility is ex cathedra statement, speaking in his office as supreme pastor of the whole world on matter of faith and morals, and he teaches it definitively. And the definitive nature is given by the language used or the context sometimes. Um, But then there's some distinctions. One distinction is infallibility does not mean impeccability. Uh, That's easier to get a hold of. Most Catholics know that that popes sin and go to confession. Right. People aren't scandalized when we heard JP2 is going to confession a lot. Yeah, right, right, right. He's a sinner, and that's awesome that he's going to confession. And the more often you go, the better off you are. Yeah, yeah, so that's great. So infallibility doesn't mean impeccability. So that means uh, no pope is guaranteed that their behavior, there's no guarantee that a pope's behavior is going to be holy. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, there have been some, a handful of popes, whose behavior was rather morally turpitudinous. <laughs> <laughs> to put it okay? lightly, yeah. Yeah, so that can, yeah, right. So that can happen, right? So Murder mean, and rape and pillage. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, all that and, stuff. And incest. Yeah. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, bad things. Or, or, for example... And they uh, were valid popes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They were, absolutely. Because uh, uh, infallibility doesn't mean impeccability. And then also, infallibility doesn't mean that the pope is issuing new truths to the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith, divine revelation, public revelation, ceases, as we a lot of us know, with the death of the last apostle, John. So infallibility doesn't mean that the Pope's going to be issuing new truths, heretofore completely unknown or more or less unknown, 
to the deposit of faith and morals. Um, and then finally, infallibility uh, of the Pope also does not mean does not mean that the Pope, when he writes an infallible statement and promulgates it, that he does so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that his promulgation is it's connected to the last point. It's it's not public revelation, it's not new revelation. Okay, so that's kind of the the dog. That's a brief version of the dogmatic treatment. I mean, essentially, he is a guarantor of the truth. That's he's it. Not, he's not an originator of, of not an originator thing. He, yeah, yeah. These actions are actions to protect the deposit, guard it, explain it authentically. Mm-hmm fine guarantee, and then promulgate it uh, evangelically. Okay, so, uh, so that's what it is. And, and papal infallibility is a divinely revealed truth. How do we know about it? Not through philosophy, not through reasoning alone, but, print, but, but really exclusively through divine revelation, which is understandable through reason. So, so, so papal infallibility, we know it has limits. There you know, is always this debate that I see, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this, but I mean, something that I see in a lot of discussions is sort of this insistence that, yeah, well, it may not be an infallible teaching, but we're still required to give our assent. I mean, where is that line drawn? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> before we get to that, let me say one last thing, if I could, Okay. about, about infallibility here. Uh, so uh, another issue with infallibility is that uh, concretely, historically, we have had popes who were legitimate popes, uh, valid successors of Peter, such as John the Twenty Second, who have taught material heresy in non-papal magisterial uh, formats. So, for example, John the Twenty Second. That's a little mind blowing. It is, and and it, but but the more you know church history, you know. You're not as scandalized by it. I mean, when you, if, you, if you're hearing this for the first time, welcome to the club. It'll be okay. Don't worry. The faith is the truth. <laughs> it's okay. But uh, a lot of us, just in our, I suppose there's a degree of insensitivity that you develop just to deal with your discipline, just like a surgeon who has to slice open bodies, right. has to become a little less sensitive to the grotesquerie of cutting open skin. Mm-hmm. And, and in theology, <laughs> this is one of those grotesqueries that we have to, just deal with, not be insensitive altogether, but but it's just a fact, and, and it doesn't really damage our faith. As Newman said, 10,000 difficulties do not a doubt make. Right. So here's one of the difficulties. John the 22nd taught in multiple homilies, papal homilies, which are not ex cathedra statements. They're not issued to the whole church. They're issued only to the pe- people present in the liturgy at that point. Uh, and repeatedly stated that after death, we do not go to our final judgment, but that souls are in, so to speak, a holding period mm. where they're awaiting the general resurrection of all bodies from the dead at the end of the world, and then the just will enter the beatific vision for the first time, and the damned will go to hell. Kind of a big is, deviation from Catholic eschatology. It is, yeah. right. It, it is a substantial problem. A number of uh, theologians and prelates remonstrated with him uh, initially, with no success, he was intransigently holding and teaching this heresy until finally, uh, near his death, before his death, he, recant- he recanted. Okay, But even if he didn't recant, the guy was still a legitimate pope. Uh, and at the same time, though, how are the faithful to react? Are we supposed to say, 
well, look, give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, maybe that's true, and somehow maybe that squares, even though it's contradictory, the opposite to what has been always taught, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that, that in Scripture that we die once, and after death there's judgment, right? It's immediate, okay? Are we supposed to violate, you know, right? So um, the, I guess the question is, how, how morally, charitably, and properly are to we respond, are we to respond to this uh, these kinds of things, if indeed they they are going on, you know. Right. So I, I mean, so I want to before because I, I want to talk about that. But so help me though, because the thing that that I have run into so many times is the question that I had started to ask, and I and I really want to just touch on it. I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time. Oh, that's on right. It. I got you off on. A yeah. No, but I mean, it's fine because I think that these things are interrelated. So how do we deal with the idea of? You know, yes, it may not be infallible, but we have to. Get oh, assent. right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you say some people will say we still have to assent to teachings, even if they're not infallible. He stated. Right. right. And that is correct. OK. And you want to know where that's stated. Uh, that's stated repeatedly in church documents. Uh, in Vatican One, in Dei Filius, you have an incohate, like an like an initial foray into the teaching that we have to accept uh, even non-infallible teachings of the ordinary magisterium of the Pope or the bishops. So the extraordinary magisterium of the Pope would be ex cathedra statements, and the extraordinary magisterium of bishops would be ecumenical councils. They're extraordinary. They don't happen on a regularly scheduled basis. But the ordinary magisteria of Pope and bishops is something that is regularly scheduled. They are their duty is to teach the faith on a regular basis, and so Vatican I enjoins upon the faithful assent that we must assent to those teachings. And then over the next 150 years, the Church's teaching has become more and more clarified and specific with regard to the kind of assent owed to non-infallible teachings. So uh, Vatican II Lumen Gentium around Article 25, talks about the kinds of assent required, and then a CDF document, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under Ratzinger in 1990, re- reiterated and clarified this teaching. It's not a novum from Vatican II, it's an ancient teaching. Vatican I gives expression to it, but it's even taught prior to Vatican I. So here it is. To every definitive teaching that's issued whether it's by the papal extraordinary magisterium or a general council, uh, or even an ordinary magisterial teaching that's issued definitively. It's something that belongs to the deposit of faith that's held everywhere, always, and by all. Uh, we owe the assent of faith. And the penalty for refusing that is heresy, the penalty for dissent, okay, on a definitive teaching regarding the revealed truth of faith and morals. But when, when you come to a non-definitive teaching on faith and morals, mm. the exact language that the uh, Church uses in Lumen Gentium in Vatican II, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, they discuss this around Article 25, and the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 1990 under Cardinal Ratzinger uh, issued further clarification on it. So here's this, the, the, the teaching. All Catholics have to give the assent of, of faith to revealed truth that's taught definitively. 
the penalty for dissent is heresy. Mm-hmm. But there can also be definitive teaching on faith and morals that's not presented by the magisterium as revealed or not. So they may not mention whether the teaching is revealed. It may be in, intimately connected to revelation, such as uh, the teaching on euthanasia. Where is that in revelation or, or right. stem cell research? Right. But it's intimately connected to uh, don't kill. <laughs> sure, sure. And so it, it, it's presented definitively. We must, we must not commit euthanasia. We must not do stem cell research. Mm-hmm. Uh, cloning is another example that's not in Revelation, but it's intimately connected to the respect we have to have for human life. So these are definitive teachings on faith and morals. That it's not said by the magisterium whether they're revealed or not. And the assent that we're required to give in the language of the church is these are teachings that we are to firmly accept and hold. So this is language we'll hear. That, that's right. And this is part of the language of the oath of fidelity that professors are required, of theology are required to profess <clears throat> before they receive the mandatum from the local bishop to teach Catholic theology according to the canons that John Paul II inserted into the code Mm-hmm. In ex corde ecclesiae, the 25th anniversary of which is actually next year. Wow, has it been? So we're long? firmly to ex- <laughs> we're firmly to accept and hold definitive teachings that are not presented clearly as revealed, though they're probably intimately connected to Revelation, and to reject those, to dissent from those, is not heresy, but it's called the way they describe it is you you lose communion with the church. Mm. Uh, it's an excommunicable offense. So, for example, euthanasia. I mean, not that excommunication is a common punishment that's deployed anymore. Although there's the automatic excommunication. For abortion, absolutely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right. And then here is the answer to directly to your question. Non-definitive teachings of the church, and those would be the ordinary teachings of the Pope and bishops, Mm -hmm. that are not presented definitively. So they're non-definitive teachings. The church teaches definitively that to non-definitive teachings we are to give what's called, quote, religious submission of will and intellect, obsequium, submission or obedience of will and intellect. So it's interior. It's not just lip service. And then to refuse assent to those, uh, it's not a penalty of heresy. It's not a penalty of loss of communion. It's just called falling into error or making a rash judgment. But at some point along this spectrum, there has to be a point where we can say, hold on, something that the Pope said doesn't sound like something that one of the other Popes said, or that one of the other councils said, or that one of the church documents that's infallible said. Or sounds like it's in contradiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I think a good example, you know, something that's kind of become a big issue this week, and this is... You know, we don't. I don't want to get into the tangent because it's a big deal. But I mean, you know, the the questions surrounding the Society of Saint Pius X, Bishop Fillet, the Superior General of the Society, met with Cardinal Mueller at the CDF this week, trying to reconcile the the theological differences that they have, which don't simply revolve around the changes to the Ordo of the Mass, but but actually revolve around certain principles like you know the promulgation of religious liberty, which is very different. Uh, the doctrine of religious liberty as expressed in Pope Pius IX's syllabus of errors is very different than you would see in the documents of Vatican II. And so there's this this feeling of what do we do when we start 
sensing this contradiction and and i mean that's a you know this is a very controversial case and nobody seems to be able to settle it and i don't expect you to do that but i mean in in other matters thank you <laughs> no i mean obviously <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to put you on that spot, but I mean, it's yes, first... no, I seriously, honestly appreciate that because <laughs> <laughs> but it's the first thing that comes to mind for me because it's been a big topic of discussion this week because the SSBX has kind of been front and center with some of the stuff that they were doing. They were in Oklahoma. They were, you know, they were doing a mass and reparation, you know, for the for the satanic mass that was done in Oklahoma City. They're meeting with Rome. You know, there's all this stuff going on around them, and it kind of brings their issues back to the center because these are a group of people that in in essence you know they adhere to the doctrines as they existed in 1960 and yeah. the the objections that they have many of them relate to hey sorry guys you changed the doctrines but this is what the church always believed so setting them aside there is that general sense of obviously you know they're considered either depending on who you talk to any given day of the week, schismatic, excommunicated, actually not schismatic, you know, in imperfect reconciliation. There's all these terms that are thrown about. It's right, very confusing. Right. And so canonically irregular. Yeah. Yeah. And Sounds so like a gastrointestinal disease. Yeah, exactly. So as, <laughs> yeah, if you're canonically irregular for more than four years, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's a problem. I mean, because, yeah. because it's very difficult for, for the average lay Catholic to kind of figure out, okay, I have a problem with this. I can read. I have a college education. I've got some training in theology and I'm looking at these documents and I'm saying, okay, this thing the Pope said, or this thing that this conciliar document said doesn't seem to jive with the thing before. I don't know how to figure that out. And so yeah, at well, some point yeah. along the line, there's got to be some way that we can, we can say that out loud without violating charity to say, I, I have a problem with this. Well, well, first of all, uh, it can be right away. <laughs> you don't have to wait to say, I don't understand this, I have a problem with that. There's, uh, that as such is good, and the Church encourages that. In fact, requires theologians, in the CDF document I cited, it's called Donum Veritatis, the Instruction on the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian. They instruct theologians in particular, but you can extend this to the faithful, but theologians have a duty, a serious duty, to make known to the magisterium, not to the mass media. They say, not, in fact, not to the mass media, but to, to the magisterium, there are difficulties and problems with teaching. So they, they invite that. The church actually requires us to, to, to do that. And by the way, we do it by issuing or sending to the CDF something called dubia, which literally, literally means doubts. But, uh, right. but it's just a question that's issued. How are we but supposed to understand But it's an established this? process. There's it is. Yeah, it's an old issue. process. Yeah, okay. But here's the thing, Steve. When popes give homilies, they are the pope. Mm-hmm. But the homily is not even an exercise of the ordinary magisterium of the Pope. Okay. It's not even on the map. So they, they can, and some popes have, said all sorts of wild stuff. That's good But it's know. not really a problem because there's no kind of assent required at all. Unless what they're saying actually is the deposit of faith. And then right. the assent that you have to give is not because he said it in the homily, but because it's been revealed and the church has officially taught it okay, prior to his homily. So an average... Catholic. Let's say he's a blogger. Not that I would know anyone like this. <clears throat> but um, let's say that he sees something that the Pope does that he thinks is problematic. Does he have an ability, uh, you know, without jeopardizing his soul or his status within the church, 
to make sort of a statement in a public way that says, uh, I've got a problem with the Pope's do- with what the Pope's doing, and I think that it's it's leading people astray. I mean, is, is criticism of a Pope sort of verboten within the church, or is there room for a, a level of freedom of, of speech and of thought on this? Well, the virtue of prudence and the canons of prudence, such as those that, that St. Alphonsus Liguri, Doctor of Moral Theology, right, uh, mm-hmm. taught, are really critical to resolve the, these kinds of questions. So you have to take it on a case-by-case basis at the risk of sounding casuistic. It's a bad word among certain theologians, but it's, a, it's an important thing to do. So the, so the, the answer is it depends. <laughs> so depending on the situation, if, for example, you have a very clear, uh, reasonable expectation of, of causing strict scandal, meaning leading people to sin, mm. specifically sin sp- specifically like... Uh, rejecting Christ's establishment of the papacy or rejecting the doctrine of papal infallibility, then you have to be careful, right? But I don't think that's the situation we're in right now. I think we're in the opposite end of the spectrum where okay. there's a there's there's a, a too robust, that's not really the right word, understanding of papal infallibility or, or really an overreach or overextension. There's not really danger of people denying it. There's danger of people misunderstanding it and extending it to things to which it doesn't extend. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think so. I think, I think it's well within the rubrics of charity to, uh, to, to say, <clears throat> this doesn't seem right. I have a problem with this. Very often you could begin by just asking questions like Robert Sirico, Father Robert Sirico did from Acton Institute after the issuance of Evangelii Gaudium, where he said he doesn't say the Pope is wrong, even though he might think the Pope is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, on on the economic issues in Evangelii Gaudium, mm-hmm. but he says I'm just going to ask the Pope some questions. Where in the world right now do we see unfettered capitalism, which the Pope condemns? You see? Right, right, right. So you can start by asking questions. That's a very tame way to do it. But uh, but let's say you're treating you're going to write on a papal homily, which is widely promulgated. Uh, let's say on the miracle of the loaves right. as a sharing, right? Uh, I see nothing wrong at all uh, on the surface, depending on the situation, as long as you're avoiding scandal, with saying, look, this doesn't square. You don't have to say it doesn't seem to square. It just doesn't. Let's just just say the emperor doesn't have any clothes. It doesn't square. It's okay to say the pope doesn't have his proper dogmatic vestments on, (laughs) Uh, doctrinal vestments. This doesn't square with the teaching of Vatican I, or um, the catechism that says this was a miracle. It doesn't. Well, and I think that America Just like John the 22nd's teaching didn't square with exactly. the New Testament's teaching that once you die, you're judged and go to your final destination. Exactly. It's okay and, to say that. And I in think fact, Americans, Chair, Steve might demand that you say that. I mean, Americans in particular struggle because, you know, we're brought up in this society where freedom of speech is, is a right. You know, yeah. where we get to say what we want to say and we get to criticize who we want to criticize. And it can be difficult sometimes to reconcile that with the appropriate docility that as Catholics we owe, you know, to the Holy Father and to, and to the magisterium. And it can be easy to fall into this mode of sort of just being critical. I mean, and as a blogger of over a decade, you know, I've done this stuff. Um, and some of it, I think, has been for the good and some of it perhaps less so. But there's this sense in which, you know, what my goal is is to get at the truth and to help those who are maybe asking those questions 
themselves saying, hey, this is bothering me and I don't know what to think about it. I want to help them. I want to facilitate their ability to, to, to clarify those thoughts and to kind of get to the bottom of what it is that's bothering them and say, yeah, you know what? There is a problem with this. It's not about character assassination. It's not about tearing somebody down. It's about, yeah, if the Pope is saying something that's wrong, it's wrong. If you have an abusive father, he's an abusive father. I mean, you don't you don't negate the office. You don't negate, you know, the authority that a person has, but you say, hey, maybe you need to step away from this. Maybe you need to be a little bit more cautious. And and I think it's really difficult for a lot of us to kind of know where those boundary lines are. And we get, you know, those of us who are willing to step forward and say those things, we get attacked a lot for saying that yeah. stuff. And, well, let, let's map out a couple because I think this would help. First of all, I, I fully I'm on board with your desire and intention. I think this is a critical issue. It's timely and it's urgent for Catholics who want to remain faithful, loving, and obedient to the Pope, which is what we want to do as Catholics, what we ought to do, um, and how criticism can be consonant with that. So let's let's map out just a couple of the boundaries. There are many that we may not get to, but but one of them would be this. When we there's a fine line between uh, a charitable kind of poking fun or or even pointing out the ridiculous character of a certain statement. Like a few minutes ago when I said, you know, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. The pope mm-hmm. isn't wearing his dogmatic clothes. I love him. I, I could say that to him, okay? It's, I, don't, I don't say that in a spirit of malice, and it should be clear, I hope, to listeners that that wasn't malicious. But sometimes there's a fine line between fun, you know, having a little fun, mm-hmm. uh, or showing that something is ridiculous, and then... A kind of snark that's malicious or intending to tear down, or that's radically grumpy or or or, or uh, curmudgeonly, that could really uh, besmirch somebody's character beyond what you ought to be doing. Okay, right. So so there's a fine line, and and to avoid it, you just can, you know, uh, just make sure you. <laughs> Pray, think twice, talk to another person before, as you do, I'm sure, and I do too, before we uh, issue our, our written statements or, you know, things but, like that. You know, sometimes there's a suggestion that, oh, you know, why are you writing this in a public forum? Why aren't you sending letters to the Pope instead? Well, that was the second doing? thing I was going to mention, but go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and yeah. you know, you, you run into these objections, and, and to me, the answer has always been, well, because... What's happening is the Pope is is saying these things in a public forum. That that's exactly it, and that was my second point. And it's, and it's being disseminated instantaneously, and people right. around the world are forming conclusions right now. I don't have, you know, a month or two months or six months to wait and see if maybe he's going to get a chance to respond to my letter. You know, by then the news cycle has maybe he'll call you on the telephone. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, <laughs> but and he and he probably would if he spoke better English because he seems to call you know a lot of people. Um, but, and he yeah, has so called people who have criticized him and said, "I value your criticism." I mean, that's happened. No, I, go ahead. I think you're exactly right. Okay, and I want to draw an analogy, but you're right on this, Steve. That um, is it okay to publicly. Uh, the, the issue here about whether it's okay or not to publicly uh, state that you disagree or think that something he said is wrong, to publicly criticize, um, is an important question. It's one that needs to be asked because when it's not, it could enter into a sin called detraction. Mm-hmm. And that would be revealing somebody's errors, mistakes, or sins publicly to other people uh, who who should not know about it. Okay? Right. 
All right, so that so that's serious. Um, it could sometimes lean into calumny if you're mistaken and say he's done something bad when he didn't. And of course, that's why you you write, you think about it, you pray, you talk to somebody. But here's a nice analogy. My wife came up with this, uh, and I like it as far as it goes. Um, let's imagine if he had a kind of lovely, wonderful, lovable uncle, old uncle, who's also a little bit crazy sometimes and says crazy things. Um, okay. When he when he says some silly things in the family privately that if other people knew about it could lead to a horrible impression rather than you know something endearing but rather make him seem like a crazy leech or lecher or something, right. uh, then you wouldn't want to tell people that if, if what he said was private in the family. That would be a sin of detraction. But if your uncle's out in public and you're with him and he says some crazy things, okay, mm-hmm. then it's okay and sometimes it's required that you explain to other people within earshot of the funny things he said um, that, you know, he's a really, you know, he's my uncle and uh, he's, wrong, he's wrong about that. But, you know, I guess this doesn't perfectly apply to the Pope necessarily because he may not be, you know, crazy old uncle type. I don't not convinced he is. I think no, but I think that shrewd the, and savvy, and I think he knows exactly what he's saying. Yeah, but the point stands is that there is almost an obligation as a Catholic to say, "Yeah, That's the, the Pope may be saying this, but but I know what the what the Church teaches, and that's not it." Right, and this has been a problem for us now, especially because we've, in many ways, been been spoiled or lulled into into a soporific stupor, uh, so to speak, by having a lot of popes in the last hundred years, who, many of whom have just been stellar. So Leo, everybody from Pius IX, Leo XIII, these are stellar popes expressing themselves with great precision and orthodoxy uh, in both their public magisteria and privately and in homilies and in exchanges with people on a day-to-day basis. Pius X is a great example People like that, right? So we've had some really amazing popes, yeah. And so it's kind of it kind of gobsmacks us um, when all of a sudden we have a pope who, though he says some wonderful things, also says things that seem contrary to the deposit of faith and morals on occasion, and does things contrary to canon law uh, and stuff like that. So that it's rough. It's tough. We're not used to it. We don't know how to deal with it. So. So, I mean, I think, again, going back to the point of, hey, we're not piling on, but we're asking these questions for legitimate reasons. There's things going on that have the, the potential to have far-reaching and long-lasting impacts on you know, the understanding of Catholics of what the Church teaches. And in particular, as we head toward the Synod on Marriage and Family, um, there's some big, big issues in play. And the synod is happening under this Pope's leadership, and he doesn't strike me as having a very precise leadership style when it comes to adhering and hewing very close to doctrine and dogma. And so, you know, for example, um, you know, we could talk about a little bit the marriages that happened in Rome a couple Sundays ago on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, um, you know, where the Vatican releases this statement and they basically say, yeah, you know, these people are just like you. They're living in sin. <laughs> they're, they're living together. They've already got kids. Uh, and we're going to go ahead and marry them anyway. Um, 
you know, that as an anticipatory gesture of, hey, we're focusing on marriages and families and, you know, the elderly and all this stuff that we're focusing on going into the synod. I mean, it's sort of, it sounds crass, but I mean, it's sort of a dog and pony show where they're doing this stuff in advance of the synod to draw attention to the fact that that's what's coming. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, I don't know that you may be right on target. I'm not sure. And also I'm not sure that, that this was, uh, yeah, it's, I just don't know, but you may be right. I mean, it's I very think it's, troubling. A, it's, a, it's a thematic manifestation of, Hey, we're about to do a big deep dive on marriage and family. And so we're going to do some public events that relate to marriage and family. And we're going to kind of just bring that to the forefront because otherwise I don't know why we're having this big mass marriage ceremony on the feast of the exaltation of the Holy cross, which by the way, (laughs) cross is about suffering and penance. And I talked about this in the last podcast, but it's not about sort of, Hey, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter if you're in sin, go ahead, you know, and just keep on going. And, And maybe, you know, that's not what happened. And I talked about this again in, in some detail in the last podcast, but there's this sense in which the Diocese of Rome releases a statement and says, this is what these people are doing. And you talked a minute ago about the sin of detraction. And I mentioned this, you know, this idea of if these people were not called to repentance, that's a problem because they should have been. If they were called to repentance, but they chose not to accept it, and then the Diocese of Rome releases this statement saying, yeah, they're living together, they're cohabitating just like everybody does. Then you have an issue of detraction because they're talking about, hey, this is the sin they're living in. And if they're not, and if they accepted the call to repentance and they stopped living together and they went to confession, they did all this stuff, then it's calumny because you're saying they're living together when they're not. You're when they're not, yeah. That they all see, are. I don't see a good way out of this. No, I don't either. And it all devolves upon that, inf- that, uh, that doggone statement that the Diocese of Rome issued. If they didn't issue a statement, if they didn't publicize this, it may have been just a little blip on the radar screen right. of the media. But because they issued the public statement uh, that was cited, I think the UK Telegraph broke it, but maybe they were just repeating it. But I, mean, I saw broke, it in Reuters. I saw it in a number of other... Yeah. Whoever broke it, the statement was quoted in part, uh, just as you said, these are people like any others... Some of them already live together, and some have children. And you're right; the, the it's either detraction or it's calumny, <laughs> and it's not good. And yes, because the Diocese of Rome issued the statement, even if the Pope wasn't involved in the composition or approval of the statement, in a sense, he has to own it because he is the head of the Diocese of Rome. Though you can debate this. There's a another bishop who actually is in charge of the day-to-day workings of the diocese. But this is a statement that involves an activity of the Pope, and it's issued by the Diocese of Rome. And he does refer to himself constantly as the Bishop of Rome. I mean, there's a sense in which... Well, he does structurally as another guy. What's that? Well, yes, he does, but structurally... Well, first of all, yes, he does, and that's an issue. (laughs) There's an issue there. But secondly, there's still another guy, and I forget his name, who actually is a bishop who runs the day-to-day Episcopal duties in that diocese. But 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 anyway, you cut it. It's not good, and it does give the appearance of a posturing. Um, but look, even however that shakes out, let's reverse engineer some of what's going on here. The Pope uh, has repeatedly spoken, especially in interviews. Okay, and not just with—is it the guy from La Stampa, the atheist fellow, um, uh, Scalfari? You're talking about. Yeah, was that La Stampa? I forget. I think, I think it is. Antonio Scalfari, so, I believe. Yeah, whether it was he, and, and I know there's debates about 
Lombardi says that uh, the interview <laughs> may not accurately report what the Pope said. But how about the one issued by La Civiltà Cattolica, the Jesuit rag, that, that everything they say has to be, everything they publish has to be vetted by the Vatican, mm-hmm. and that was simultaneously issued in translation by Jesuit magazines across the planet, including America magazine in the United States. Well, I mean, even the Scalfari interview, the Vatican said that the Pope was able to review the text, and if he had had any misgivings, he would have... Right, right. And and what I'm getting at is in a lot of these interviews, the Pope expresses an attitude of, of, uh, in fact, more or less directly says that we don't want to put dogma before love, Mm -hmm. right? And we have to have this idea of mercy, and very often the idea of mercy is one in which... uh, expressed by the Pope, in which which uh, we we kind of preemptively, it seems to me, uh, at the risk of sounding overly critical of the Pope, but frankly it just smacks to me as, as an idea that we just declare somebody forgiven without the requisite outward signs of repentance, namely right. going to confession and uh, making a commitment not to live in that lifestyle anymore. Casper certainly has that, uh, Cardinal Walter Casper, from Germany certainly has that attitude and expresses it unequivocally in his book on mercy that just came out and which the Pope praised. Um, and the Pope praised him and his book as one of the first acts of the pontificate after his election in 2013. So this idea of mercy lacking the outward signs, mercy and forgiveness being preemptively, I, I would say, Proclaimed without the requisite outward signs of repentance, I see you see that uh, in his statements and in his interviews, especially. But then there's also this notion uh, uh, that uh, somehow forgiveness <clears throat> is something that we, we we just declare, okay, uh, and and that and that somehow mercy doesn't really entail an inward transformation by grace. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, so then you can say things like, I boast in my sins because my sins are covered by Christ. These are traditional Lutheran notions. I'm not saying they're Lutherans, okay, but it, it, it resonates with traditional Lutheran notions that grace doesn't really change you inside. Um, the Pope has never said that, but the, the Pope and Casper, especially more than the Pope, speak in such a way that really resonates with this Lutheran notion. Grace doesn't transform you interiorly, therefore, uh, sin, sin boldly, boast in your sins. <clears throat> you're right. forgiven. Just You're just forgiven. That's fine. You don't, there's no, it's kind of obviating the sacrament, so to speak. And then the, the other thing that's troubling is this juxtaposition of dogma and love and mercy, right? So love and mercy on the one end, and then dogma and being obsessed with doctrine, okay, on the other is, a, I think, well, frankly, a, 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 an immature, it's immature, okay? Because love and mercy are doctrines of Christ. They're dogmas, they're teachings. Um, it's, there's not a zero-sum game where you're being too dogmatic and not loving enough. <laughs> right. If you understand the doctrine better and better and more accurately, then you're going to understand the need for genuine love more and more. So... So there's a lot of troubling, I think, theological uh, presuppositions lurking behind um, a lot of these statements in, in the interviews and leading up to this to this synod, right? I mean, first of all, look, look at this. I, th- I think it can be characterized accurately like this. 
we're actually going to have a synod, mm-hmm. an extraordinary synod, where one of the topics is whether or not uh, a settled, definitive doctrine of morals, namely, we are not to receive communion in a state of mortal sin, and to do so is itself a mortal sin, where one of these doctrines, this particular doctrine, is going to be voted on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's very troubling, Steve. I, I, I think that is what is behind a lot of people's concern and call for, we got to pray for the Synod, right? They're worried that, that uh, you know, things could go south. And why? Well, really, if Casper and the Pope hadn't said what they had have been saying, I don't think we would be worried. Yeah. So I just we just should call it like it is, I think, and it's sad. It makes me makes me very sad. And we don't know what to expect. I mean, and this is look, this is not if we're going to be honest and grown up about this. This is not entirely dissimilar to what happened surrounding the promulgation of Humana Vitae. We have the pontifical Commission yeah. on Birth Control that does this study and basically recommends to the Pope that artificial contraception should be acceptable. And Pope Paul VI, much to the surprise of everyone, winds up you know, disagreeing with the commission and issuing Humana Vitae. But in, in an intervening period of you know, at least a year, I think it may have been actually a little bit longer, I mean, they were on this media blitzkrieg where they were just telling everybody that the church was going to change on this. That, that's true, and that's, those are the similarities. There is a significant dissimilarity, if I'm not mistaken, I may be, and that is that I don't think Paul VI was issuing salvos or little shots in interviews right. where he was giving the impression that he's entertaining or considering, right. Right. or not right. just entertaining or considering, but actually leaning in the direction of uh, stating it's okay to, to take the estrogen pill. And I think that's significant. Okay. So if we look at the fact that he, as far Whereas as Pope we Francis know, is making yeah. motions in, in the direction of divorced and quote unquote remarried people receiving communion as something that mercy right. and charity require, but really that would be not merciful, not right. charitable. I mean, again, it would going be back, facilitating a mortal sin. Going back to Bishop Schneider, you know, who I find myself referring to all the time because he just has said things so well. He said. You know, the, a diabetic, it's not merciful to give a diabetic sugar just because they want to have a sweet. Uh, you know, it's going to hurt them. I mean, you don't give somebody something that's going to hurt them just because they want it. Love actually demands that we do what's good for them, not just what they that, want. That's right. That's right. And so I think, you know, what what I find troubling is if Paul VI, in fact, did not give the impression through little... Uh, interviews and snippets and comments and things like that, that he was going to change the teaching. And yet, when Humane Vitae was issued, there was already a coalition of bishops and priests and everybody who was like, forget it, we're not going to listen to it. I mean, we're going to do what we want to do anyway. You know, the Pope held the line and Humane Vitae fell on deaf ears and now we're in a position where 90-some percent of Catholics are contracepting and coming into this synod now in 2014, that's one of the topics on the table because when you look at the surveys that went out across the world, at, at the early results that came back universally said Catholics aren't practicing the teachings, the sexual moral teachings of the church. Right. They're just not, um, which is a direct well, fallout a, of Humane Vitae. That begs a question then, then who cares? Why should the Synod, let's go in the other direction and say, what if the Synod, I don't think this will happen, but what if the Synod gives 
a stellar and beautiful and unequivocal and very strong articulation, kind of like Paul VI did in Humanae Vitae, mm -hmm. regarding the indissolubility of marriage. I think they are going to reaffirm it, no doubt. But what if it was just a stellar reaffirmation and a complete condemnation of the mortal sin of receiving after, if you've been divorced and attempted remarriage without repentance? Right. What if they said that, because uh, what you're saying begs this question, nobody would follow it anyway, right? Yeah. Well, he, part of the issue here is that Paul VI's statement, Humanae Vitae, is unequivocal on the intrinsic immorality of contraception. But after the fact, after it was issued, and yes, there was a very well-organized coalition of bishops and theologians who dissented from it and priests, most, a lot of priests, not as many bishops initially, bishops eventually got on board or just were weakened. Because what happened was Paul VI and the Vatican did not put teeth behind the prohibition. Right. So when priests and theologians publicly dissented, they were not punished. Right. Do you see that? And so the faithful were led astray by wolves in sheep's clothing, dissenting on this issue without any papal check. So Hermione Vitae strong. People often, you'll hear theologians say, Paul VI was very strong in doctrine, but not as strong in discipline. He didn't take a hard line because John the Twenty-Third had said, we're going to avoid excommunications and anathemas and, and this, this attitude that we just really are not going to be excommunicating a lot of people or disciplining them. And that's a whole systemic problem that is tied into what happened in the cultural revolutions, not only in America, but in Europe in the 60s <clears throat> and the problems with authority, down with authority and things like that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but back to, uh, to this, I think the Synod is not going to adopt officially um, the Casper Bergoglio uh, plan. Okay, I, and yeah, I do think it's safe to say that this is Pope Francis's idea as well. I think he likes Casper. He's made it clear that he likes what he's saying. But he, let's let's just for sake of of logical possibility say it's just the Casper plan. Mm -hmm. Either way, I don't think the Synod's going to to promulgate this as a change in discipline and violate uh, a church dogma in morals, okay? Um, I think what, I think Pat Archibald had had said something along these lines, right, in, in Creative Minority Report. He said what he thinks is going to happen, correct me if that's not what he said, but I think he said that it's likely <clears throat> that the Synod will reaffirm in, in kind of a weak way, or at least a modicum of, of uh, clarity, that marriage is indissoluble, and then remand to local bishops' conferences, national bishops' conferences, or individual bishops, the pastoral decision to, <clears throat> to determine whether they're going to admit the divorced and remarried, uh, those, those who are, uh, those who are uh, 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 polygamists, okay, in the technical moral term, mm -hmm. to receive communion in unrepentant polygamy. And, uh, and if that's the case, that's going to be that's going to be a nightmare because <laughs> the entire German Bishops Conference was already reprimanded for doing just this by Cardinal Mueller, head of the current head of the CDF, and by Ratzinger before him when Ratzinger was head of the CDF. So you can be sure the German Bishops Conference will just liberalize this. Well, and I mean, and a that's very a, serious abusive situation. Yeah, um, yeah. So. And, and I mean, that's the thing is, you know, people say all the time, well, I mean, the Pope can't change doctrine. You know, there's the, the indefectibility of the church, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't have to change doctrine in order to change praxis. You don't, 
You don't have to mess with doctrine at all. All you have to do is lead people to believe that doing a certain thing is okay. With yeah, a but actually, a Steve, I think this would constitute – so this opens up into a set of issues like maybe we could talk about. I think this to, – to, if, if the Pope or the Synod or both were to say it is okay under certain circumstances and they sub- circumscribe them and detail them, Mm-hmm. For polygamists, and they wouldn't use that language, of course, because that would sound unmerciful, but it's just a technical moral term, mm-hmm. those who have more than one spouse, um, uh, even if they're not living with both or more at the same time. Um, it's okay for them to receive communion is not just a matter of praxis, practice, or discipline, but it is actually, that statement would violate a definitive teaching, a dogmatic teaching on, in morals and that teaching is that, is that it is a mortal sin to receive communion in a state of mortal sin, including unrepentant, let's say, unrepentant polygamy. Okay? Right. So, so, <laughs> First so then the question comes yeah. up whether this could happen at a synod. Could, could a synod do it? Now, I don't think they are. I think Pat Archibald is right. It's, they, they're probably not going to do it. But could they do it? And if they did it, what then? Do you want to talk about that or not? I, you know what? I'm up for it. Let's, let's okay. go there. Let's well, go there. <laughs> uh, the Pope and ecumenical councils of the church, general ecumenical councils, cannot teach error in those, in those contexts when their statement is definitive on faith and morals. Okay. So what is a synod? Well, <laughs> a synod is not the papal magisterium, nor is a synod the universal magisterium of bishops in union with the Pope gathered in an extraordinary ecumenical council like Nicaea, Chalcedon, or Vatican I, or Trent. Okay? Mm-hmm. A synod is historically a, called a local or particular council. And the, the doctrine issued from synods, let's say the synod uh, of Toledo, there's several synods, 11 or so or more synods of Toledo, in the 5th and 6th and 7th centuries, um, which issued, for example, the Filioque and the Creed, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, were, they started off as local synods. So their teachings for the local faithful, in, in that case, what's now called Spain, all right? Mm-hmm. But after synods, popes can promulgate the teaching of a local synod universally, uh, which was done with the filioque, and then the teaching of a local synod can become universalized. Okay. But what about these synods after Vatican II? They're not particular synods like we had synods in the United States, a synod of Baltimore, uh, where the Baltimore Catechism was issued, right? It was a kind of a, a, a governing a regulatory document of faith and morals for the Catholics in the United States. But synods after Vatican II are funny beasts because the participants are bishops pulled from all sorts of different uh, segments geographically uh, from the pl- on the planet. But it's not an ecumenical council because an ecumenical council requires that all bishops in union with Rome be invited to attend. Now, not all actually have to attend, but all have to be invited to attend. <clears throat> in this case, a whole, most bishops are not going to attend, nor are they allowed to attend. Mm. You see that? So even though it's not a local synod like the synods of Toledo or there were synods of Hippo or councils of Orange in the early church, which were localized councils, it still is what you could call not a localized but a particular synod. 
not a universal synod like Vatican II, but a particular synod. And in cases like that, there's no question of infallibility. It's not in play, except when they reiterate former teaching that was issued infallibly. But other than that, uh, there's, no <laughs> there's no guarantee that what they teach is going to be without error. Here is a historical example. Okay. The Synod of Pistoia was encouraged by the Pope at that time, and I believe it was Pius VI. No, it was Paul, Paul III. I'll find out in a second. But in any event, the Synod of Pistoia was, was uh, encouraged to convene. It's, it was a, a, a particular synod. And, I mean, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the one that sort of goes down in the history books is the pseudo-synod of Pistoia, right? Yeah, ultimately, that is correct. Um, I think it may have been, I'm looking at it here, I think it was Pius VII. But in any event, no, no, I'm sorry, it was Pope Pius VI. Okay. Okay. So Pius VI encouraged the bishops to hold a local synod of Pistoia in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And so they held the synod and ended up teaching all sorts of doctrinal error. After which, years, a few years later, pretty quickly, Pope Pius VI who had encouraged it to be convened, condemned it. <laughs> condemned propositions of that synod <laughs> as being heretical. So the, so the point of, and I may, forgive me, and, and listeners, please forgive me if I've gotten some of the details wrong, but I know that the, the fact is that the Synod of Pistoia uh, has propositions that for sure are condemned. I know that for sure. And that the point that I'm making is simply this, that no particular or local synod has a guarantee of infallibility. Right. Period. So, <laughs> but that shouldn't cause anxiety or insecurity in the listeners or any of us here, okay? Because, because in this case, I think, like I keep saying, Pat's right. It's, they're not going to... I don't think they're going to teach that it's okay, contrary to definitive teaching, that it's not a mortal sin for polygamists to receive communion. It is, and I don't think they're, they're going to be able to say it's not. I hope not. We should pray that they don't. Sure. Because if they do, it could be both a crisis and a and a you know a, a suffering that could uh, have some good outcome. We could get clarity on on the battle lines in the church. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, between the true and the false church. Okay. But uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. But even the act, Steve, as we spoke. Uh, earlier before the interview, even the act uh, of saying, let's let local bishops decide whether it's okay or not, is itself indirectly uh, encouraging um, or, or at least permitting a, a mortal sin. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly the kind of stuff that happened without such explicit permission with Humanae Vitae. I mean, I've talked to people who said, yeah, my bishop quietly told the priests in our I mean people who were in seminary said the bishop told us that it's you know contraception no big deal don't even worry about it that's yet. right and but the difference is Paul VI didn't issue a statement in exactly. Humanae saying local bishops can decide this right whereas this synod if it does that's going to be you know it's we all know right what's going to happen it's going to be crazy so if it does i mean you know that's the worst case scenario but if i mean we can't say with any certitude that it is impossible for something like that to happen, right? 
Right. Yeah, we can't say it's impossible. That it is logically possible. So and if it, it, it were to happen, what does it mean? It has historically happened, Senator Pistoia. Right. So if if it were to happen, what does it mean? I mean, what it because I mean the, the thing that I've been worried about for the better well, part then of the Well, it reveals year, as Athanasius Schneider says, who who's who in the church? What side yeah. are you on? I mean, and he said that he and says the church is going to be rent in two and then then we're going to see. I mean, does it mean schism maybe? I don't know. And he it's said that he crazy. sees that coming, a split in the church if that's what happens at the council. So we I already mean, have a de facto schism. There there's a, a regnant neo-modernism among a number of theologians and clerics and some bishops. Okay, and but it's not you know formally declared and juridically so by the right. church yet. So it's not a de jure schism; it's a de facto schism. Ratzinger said as much in the Ratzinger report. I mean, it's right? frustrating Victoria. because I feel like even to broach this topic, you wind up being labeled as part of the tinfoil hat community, and it's it's really not. I mean, this is these are the stakes, guys. I mean, yeah, yeah. this is what we're looking at. If if there are bishops of the church, and and let's be honest, I mean, many of the bishops in Germany, uh, the bishop of Antwerp, Belgium, we published a report on him earlier this week where he supports not only contraception but cohabitation and in vitro fertilization, stuff that is completely disallowed by the by the church. Right. Um, but he's he he issued a pastoral letter. To the members of his diocese, and nobody has called him to Rome to say, "You can't do this stuff." I mean, that should disturb everybody. Why right. is this guy not being disciplined? Why is he not being told, "You can't say this stuff"? Cardinal Casper's proposals—I can't remember his name—but the Bishop of Trier in Germany, I mean, also has said that homosexuality can't be considered unnatural, and that. We can't really be judgmental of you know cohabitating couples, and we need to revise all. I mean, they yeah, want yeah. to revise you know this idea. Uh, the book that was written, the Rhine flows into the Tiber. I feel like the Rhine just won't stop flowing into the Tiber. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stop these German. You know. Yeah. You know, and it, and it well, was, listen, it's Steve, been though, flowing it's into the Tiber it's in North since America. Luther. It's all over the place. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and in a way, I mean, I'll I'll be I'll go out on a limb and I'll say it, but. I mean, in a way, as bad as a schism would be, it would, it would, in a sense, if it clarified doctrine, make it possible for those of us who adhere to the faith to evangelize those who have been sold a bill of goods by, by people who didn't take their duty seriously to protect the faith. Yeah, I, in that sense, it would be, in a, is refreshing the word, or just at least it would be, yeah, refreshing in the sense that we get... We're not going to play. We're not playing games anymore. The masks are off. The gauntlets are thrown. Right now, we we you know the battle lines are drawn, but I I, I don't think it's going to happen that way. Um, a, a lot more can be done covertly if it doesn't get totally out. You know, in the in open schism. And so, the synod is going to get plus, dragged plus out. Formal, right? Here's the other thing: formal schism actually does require a juridical declaration by the pope mm-hmm. or by a council in union with the pope. Um, and so if <laughs> If well, it, it goes back. south, you're not going to get that declaration yeah. unless you get the declaration in the other direction that those who are holding to orthodoxy are now called formal schismatics, right. which right. you could have, by the way, infallibility does not cover juridical decisions. So there can be false juridical decisions. Some saints have been excommunicated. wasn't Joan of Arc, right? 
um, incorrectly. <laughs> right, right. So, I just, I mean, I want to remind people that it's complex. Yeah, it's the Doctor Cirilla is not on the payroll of the Diamond Brothers here. I mean, this, you know, you you teach at Steubenville. This is not. Well, I hope I don't sound like them. No, you don't. But I mean, <laughs> but I think that the possibilities that we are entertaining right now seem like things that most Catholics never thought they'd ever see. Yeah, except yeah, most Catholics, no doubt, right. And we kind of have to war game these a little bit because we don't know what's coming, but we do know that there are bishops and cardinals heading into this synod who seem to think that it is possible to achieve an outcome which would contradict the perennial teaching and authority of the church. Yeah, so let's war game it a little bit. Let's talk about that. Um, what do you do if, even if it becomes um, a situation that's more tempered and covert? Or under the radar, like let's let local bishops deal with it, and then of course there's a, a great disunity in the church, and some bishops allow divorced and quote unquote remarried to receive communion, and others don't, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you do at that point? I think um, the the passage <clears throat> keeps coming to mind from the Gospels, where Christ is asked by his followers, well, "What are we supposed to do with these Pharisees?" And Sadducees, right, are really the Pharisees. And he says, well, look, they sit in the seat of Moses, Mm -hmm. so do what they say. Obey them, but don't follow their example. So in any kind of official, but the issue is seat of Moses. Here it's the seat of Peter, the apostolic see. So when they're sitting in the cathedral, you know, ex-cathedra, when they're making an official teaching that's binding, not an ersatz teaching from a synod that may go south, but, uh, but an, an official binding teaching from the seat of Peter, then you obey it. And we do, and we gladly do. That's part of what's joyful about being a Catholic is we're following Christ by following, you know, Peter promulgating Christ's teaching and his success, Peter's successors. Um, but you don't follow their example. That's very important. Those are very important words. Uh, we, we also need to tell other people, look, this is a mistake. Pe- there's certain people who in charity we may have to tell. So if you're a parent or if you have some authority over another person, if you're like a priest, you have to tell uh, the people over whom you have care and have to answer to Jesus for what you did for them. You have to say, look, this is not okay. But that's not that big of a deal. We're already doing that with contraception. So there are courageous laity and priests who will say, and bishops, who will say, no, it's not okay that your priest or some other bishop said you can contracept. They're making a mistake. So we just have to do that kind of thing. Just say, this is a mistake. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're yeah. And I, I mean, I think the bottom line here is we don't know what to expect. And that in and of itself is sort of an irregular situation. We don't know what's going to happen. But in a period of, you know, 14 days, two weeks, October 5th to the 19th, things could be topsy-turvy and thrown on their head. Things could be not nearly as big of a deal as we think. Uh, It could be that nothing official is declared in any way, and yet some sort of pastoral instruction comes out that makes it possible for people to interpret any way that they want. I mean, roll the dice. There's no way of knowing, but we know that some of the key constituents and the key players in this synod do not have the best interest of Catholics at heart. That's right, and may even be holding material heresy. Right. Here's here's a... Here's something important we should chat about just briefly at least. 
who cares? <laughs> yeah. Why, why, let's say it goes south to a greater or lesser extent, and there's an issue we have to deal with as faithful Catholics afterwards. Why bother telling people that, hey, here's a mistake? Why bother telling people that, let's say with respect to the contraception analogy here, that contraception, when, it, when it, if a priest tells you that it's okay, they're just making a mistake. Why, why bother, right? What are the stakes here? Mm-hmm. Well, the stakes are huge. The stakes with contraception are huge, because contraception as a mortal sin imperils your soul. It, more th- worse than that, it, it offends Almighty God and hurts Jesus on the cross, who suffers for every single sin committed. So those are big stakes. But on top of that, it undermines the very fabric of society, contraception does, right. uh, by hitting the basic unit, metaphysical unit of society, which is the family, and introducing a kind of objectification of the spouses, using them as tools for sexual venereal pleasure rather than persons to be loved. Okay? And opens the door for every other issue that we're facing with sexual morality. Well, that's right. And so the, the, it, uh, it's not even an analogy. It's actually just a kind of dovetailing outcropping of the contraception crisis in the church in the last several decades, 40 years, uh, that if, let's say, it's a soft solution and local bishops are allowed to, to determine for their own flocks the question of divorce and quote-unquote remarried receiving communion, well, this hits even more profoundly, Steve, at the family. Whereas contraception can introduce an objectification of the spouses that can be overcome because they're, if you're staying together at least, there's going to be this impetus to try to work it out. And working it out means not treating another as a piece of meat. <laughs> right, right. But, but when it comes to divorce and remarried uh, uh, issue, the divorce and quote-unquote remarriage issue, well, well, then that's that's a, a, a more intransigent. It's a deeper problematic. It's a bigger ball of wax. Uh, here we're talking about entire families getting ripped apart at the seams, and multiple parents being involved, and step parents, and uh, a, a quote unquote step parents, and and uh, and the kind of insecurity that 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 sets up on a natural level. Forget the supernatural problems, which is mortal sin, the potential of hell, and the, the harm caused to Jesus on the cross and the offense given to God and the saints and your angel and Mary, which are real and not just pietistic myths. And that's, they're real people. Right, uh, right. Beyond that, it's, it's, uh, it's the fact that uh, kid, we're going to have a whole generation of kids. We already kind of do in our divor- divorce culture, right? It's going to get worse. The church was one of the last bastions in fact, isn't the church the last bastion? Because what other Christian communion absolutely prohibits divorce and remarriage? Right. And there, this would be a de facto facilitation of divorce and remarriage and rewarding it uh, with the external symbol of communion with Christ. That you're actually communing with Christ as someone who's abandoned their spouse and their children. And, I mean, and Jiminy Cricket, what are we talking about here? I, this is insanity. I mean, it's we're talking about sacrilege, and that's the thing is that I, I mean, I, just we're going to destroy all my, putting, a whole put, generation of children, Steve. Putting all my cards on the table, you know, where I I see the devil in these details is we're not only talking about defiling the sacri- sacrament of marriage, but we're talking about defiling the blessed sacrament. I mean, this is finally about the destruction of the remaining belief in the real presence. That's right. And the authority of the magisterium. It's about, you know, 
treating all religions as equally and sufficiently efficacious for the eternal salvation and denying the doctrine of, of outside the church, there's no salvation. I mean, it's, you're taking it down to a level of, you know, we're, we were the last bastion protecting this and we're not going to do that anymore. And we're going to let people receive Jesus in a state of mortal sin. And that is going to destroy the belief that is left in the real presence because nobody receiving the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin can continue to believe that it is what it is. They just, yeah, that's, you're right. Actually, that's, that's the, that's the root outcome. And that's, that's just going to be, be apocalyptic, Steve. I mean, that's going to be hard. That's, that's really, really horrible. And, uh, and we're reaping the seeds that were sown in the 1960s with, you know, the Pontifical Commission on Birth Control. They weren't able to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, but the dissent that followed has led us, you know, with no few bishops leading the charge, you have contraception destroys marriage. Worldwide, you know, we have this this separation of the sexual act from procreation. So now we've got... Yeah, at least know, to everything else. Yeah, we've yeah. got universal cohabitation. We have abortion. We have pornography. We have same-sex marriage. The yeah. institution of marriage is destroyed. The frequency of divorce has increased exponentially. All this stuff flows from what happened surrounding Humanae Vitae. And now we wind up here at this quote-unquote pastoral situation, which was of the bishop's own making. Right, right. They didn't enforce through, through negligence. Vitae. Exactly, through negligence. Yeah, and now we've got to deal with this situation, this pastoral situation of nobody's following the sexual teachings of the church. Well, this isn't an accident. I'm sorry. Right. This happened, you know, you can say through negligence. I might even submit by design, at least in and, some areas. And, and complicitude. So, yeah. and, and let me uh, emphasize this because... Uh, the more you re- reflect on this, the more horrifying it is. And then, the, then you see the answer to the question I deployed a few minutes ago, who cares? You need to care. Everybody needs to care. Right. Even non-Catholics need to care about this. Because what's happening, all the, the uh, corruption that follows from the acceptance of contraception that you articulated, and there's even more, like in vitro fertilization and right. all sorts of other things, uh, all of that, in many different ways, is shot through at its core, at its essence, with a dehumanizing view, okay? So that, and again, who cares about that? Well, who cares? We're going to have, we already do, and we're going to have more individuals who see others as things to be used. This opens the door to tyranny, like we experience in many ways in our country right now with this administration, uh, our presidential administration, uh, but it can be a lot worse, right? It opens a door to murder. It opens a door to genocide. Uh, it opens a door to persecution. Um, and there are some great saints who who gave their lives not only for Christ, so they're martyrs, but also for marriage. And of course, obviously, there's Saint Thomas More to whom we need to pray uh, for this. But also, Saint, don't forget Saint John the Baptist. Right? Mm-hmm. His his martyrdom was precipitated by his unequivocal condemnation of Herod's polygamy. Okay? Yeah, right. So I think John the Baptist is an important saint that, that who, whose intercession we desperately need right now. Um, so let's go back to a question you asked a few minutes ago, and, 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 and what do you think about it? Should we write about this? Should we talk about this? <laughs> I don't think we have any choice. Yeah, there's no choice. We <laughs> I mean, I'm not willing to stand before the judgment seat of God and say, yeah, I had all these problems with this, but I didn't want to say anything. Yeah, right. 
I'm just not. I I would be much more comfortable spending a few extra thousand years in purgatory if that's what it comes down to. Not that I want to do that, but if that's what it comes down to, because I overplayed my hand on this. Well, I'm sorry, but you've got to defend the faith and you've got to defend the truth. You know, Father Brian Harrison wrote something. By it's got to be almost a year ago now, um, where he talked about you know what the upshot of this would be. Um. And let me just read a little bit of it. He says, think of the appalling ramifications of this. If German Catholics don't need decrees of nullity, neither will any Catholics anywhere. Won't the world's Catholic marriage tribunals then become basically irrelevant? Will they eventually just close down? And won't this reversal of bimillennial Catholic doctrine mean that the Protestants and Orthodox, who've been allowed to divorce and remarry for century after century, have been more docile to the Holy Spirit on this issue? than the true church of Christ. Indeed, how credible now will her claim be to be the true church? On what other controverted issues, perhaps, has the Catholic Church been wrong and the separated brethren been right? And what of Jesus' teaching that those who remarry after divorce commit adultery? Admitting them to communion without a commitment to continence will lead logically to one of three faith-breaking conclusions. First, our Lord was mistaken in calling this relationship adulterous, in which case he can scarcely have been the son of God. Let that sink in for a second. Right. He was mistaken in saying that this is an adulterous relationship and he therefore could not be the son of God. Second, adultery is not intrinsically and gravely sinful, in which case the church's universal and ordinary magisterium has always been wrong. Or C, communion can be given to some who are living in objectively grave sin, in which case not only has the magisterium also erred monumentally by always teaching the opposite, but the way will always also be open to communion for fornicators, practicing homosexuals, pederasts, and who knows what else. And please spare us the sophistry that Jesus' teaching was correct in his own historical and cultural context, but that since about Martin Luther's time, this has all changed. <laughs> his, his concluding paragraph is, Let us make no mistake. Satan is right now shaking the church to her very foundations over this divorce issue. If anything, the confusion is becoming even graver than that over contraception between 1965 and 1968, when Paul VI's seeming vacillation allowed Catholics around the world to anticipate a reversal of perennial church teaching. If the present successor of Peter now keeps silent about divorce and remarriage, thereby tacitly telling the church and the world that the teachings of Jesus Christ will be up for open debate at a forthcoming synod of bishops, one fears a terrible price will soon have to be paid. You cannot, that's the end of the quote, but you cannot overstate the stakes of this issue. No doubt. I I remember vividly as you were reading that, Reading that myself, Father Brian emailed that to me. It was a while back. I think it was when the the topic for the synod was first chosen, and and Casper gave his first address to the consistory uh, that brought Father Brian sent it out. Um, I don't know if it was published or if it was just a private email that he sent to some of us. But in any event, um, I believe it was actually published. Yeah, you you added a fourth dire consequence to the three that he mentions. And that fourth one is following quickly upon the heels of his third. His third consequence was that uh, there'd be no rationale to prohibit 
any other mortal person in mortal sin from receiving mm-hmm. communion. But you draw out that fourth consequence, Stephen. If you haven't written it, printed it, you should print it as well. Uh, if you haven't done so yet, and it's this: that belief in the real presence of Christ is going to be eroded. Yeah, the, the very epicenter of the church's life, which is Christ dwelling with us personally in the flesh in the Eucharist, is going to be ignored, denied, or if not ignored or denied, then horribly sacrileged and blasphemed. Yeah. I um, mean, <laughs> we're not that far removed at this point from Black Mass material. That's right. And isn't it funny that that Black Mass happened last weekend? Yeah. Right. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's coincidental. I mean, I wrote no. an article earlier this week, and I know you've been really busy. You may not have seen it, called "The Ascendancy of the Devil," and it's just about how how openly the demonic is taking place in a world where subtlety has always been the devil's chief weapon. Right? I mean, convincing right. the world that he doesn't exist allows him a freedom of operation that he would not otherwise have because he's a little bit terrifying. And frankly, if you start to see his influence in your life, the likelihood is you're going to believe in God too because they don't exist sort of in isolation. I mean, they're both there. So, you know, this idea that the veil has sort of been rent and and the devil is operating in the open because his time is short, I don't see this as coincidental. And this this thing that's happening, I mean, and I have written, I mean, it's the coup de grace. It's the century-long onslaught against the Catholic faith that's been waged from inside the church. This is this is the inside the church stuff that Pope Pius X warned about back in, you know, 1905, I think was when he wrote right. Pascendi Domenici Gregis. I mean, right. it, you know, talking about modernism and how they would lay acts to the, not just to the to the branches of the faith, but to the very roots of the faith uh, and just rip it up from the ground, you know, and, and that's, I think, I feel like here we are, we're, we're coming to this closure that, that we actually right. have now, Catholic bishops who are willing to say, yeah, we're going to get rid of everything Jesus said. We're going to get rid of everything that the, the church said. And nobody's saying to them, you have to stop. Right. Where's the, where's the congregation for the doctrine of the faith on this? Well, you know, there are bishops, Mueller included, who are saying that this synod must not uh, permit violations of moral teaching, like like is being suggested by Casper. Uh, Mueller has said so in in print and verbally, and it's going to be it's going to form part of that book coming out from Ignatius sure. Press in a few days, co-authored by Cardinal Burke and with an introduction by Mueller from the CDF and and others. But at the um, same time, these guys are going into the synod with votes. Nobody's saying, hey, you're basically, you know, you're embracing heresy publicly. You're not going to come to this count, this synod and, and do this. Well, well so, okay, so I'm guessing, I, ha- I haven't, I pre-ordered the book from Amazon. I don't have it yet. Mm-hmm. And if you want to say the title, if you can dig it up, that would be good. I could look it up. I think it doesn't come out until October, but I can see it. 7th, October 7th. So it's going to come out like a few days into the synod. But I think in that book, they actually will say this is a heretical suge- uh, suggestion that Casper is mounting. And certainly, there's an article in Nova Advetera, which is a theology trade journal that most people probably wouldn't read. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not as popular as Ignatius Press, where a number of Orthodox theologians have said uh, that this is heretical, okay, that Casper's proposal is heretical. I have um, the title of the book, if you want. It's, yeah, it's what's its called, title? It's called Remaining in the Truth of Christ... Marriage and communion in the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, listeners should consider pre-ordering that from Amazon. It's, it's going to prove to be a fantastic, uh, monumental field. You may never hear from its, its contributors again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it'll be a collector's item. <laughs> but it'll be a monumental theological, historical, and canonical treatment uh, of the issue and substantive uh, to the max. Now, listen, was it C.S. Lewis? You said there's several things I, I want to pick up on. I don't want to lose that you said. I think it may have been C.S. Lewis. Of course, I can't remember if it was he or someone else who said that it is a strategy of Satan to, maybe it was in screw tape letters, maybe elsewhere, maybe in an essay, that it's a strategy of Satan to, to help persuade, to persuade people that he doesn't exist because he can get a lot done that way. But on the other hand, there, there, are, there are limitations to that strategy. Mm-hmm. So while on the one hand he can get a lot done covertly, there are certain things he can't do covertly that he does do when people are consciously partnering with him, like black masses and anything right. uh, of that nature. And now that it's it's getting there's an unmasking, right? <laughs> That's a sign that he that he thinks he's winning. Um, of course, we know the outcome already, and that God always turns everything Satan does for the good and glory of him and the saints. And, and those who love him, right? As Paul says, it's pretty things. amazing he hasn't figured out by now that it never. No, I should, you know he has, but it's just, but but even though it's futile, he, he's brilliant, right? So he knows it, but but uh, even though it's futile, he has to, futile. He has to keep doing it because it's better than remaining in the pit and suffering in isolation, yeah, uh, eternally. So he gets a distraction by uh, involving himself in thwarting. And he gets a pleasure out of thwarting God's creation and defacing it. It's a, almost but not entirely what it's like when I have to sit in the car waiting for my wife to come out of the store. Yeah, yeah, it's like hell. You'd rather be doing something. <laughs> <laughs> right? For, to distract you from the pain. <laughs> something like uh, but, that, yeah. But what's worse, but what's worse is uh, that he wants to deface God's creation. Um, C.S. Lewis in the Space Trilogy. Yes. You read that ever? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Brilliant. In the uh, second volume, uh, in Paralandra. Like, it's called Paralandra, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, there's one character who's possessed, and he goes around slicing open frogs, slicing open their bodies and letting them writhe in pain as they die, and then sending them in a row for miles, okay? And, and it, it's a very vivid uh, kind of narrative that shows part of the perversion of Satan and his profound hatred for God and creation which reflects God. Mm-hmm. So anything that looks like God, he hates. Anything that reflects him or images him forth or, or, or shines forth something finitely of his infinite glory, he needs to destroy. And here we're talking about marriage and the family. All right? And, and to add to, to, to the pile of potential tragedies here on the horizon is this. And you mentioned it in quoting a portion of Father Brian's essay. Um, and it's the streamlining of annulment processes. Mm-hmm. We have a situation here where there are people who are entering marriage. They're given the sacrament of marriage. They're allowed to enter into it by the church uh, who are not properly formed and do not know that no matter what, marriage is a love commitment for life. And that love, of course, is not merely an emotion in the body, which comes and goes, intensifies and wanes, but rather it is a free commitment of will that no matter what happens, I will not abandon you. 
Right. I will love you and our kids. I'm not going to leave you. Huh? Mm -hmm. That's not well known. That's why maybe many marriages are annullable because people enter into it without knowing what it is. But what we have is a situation where there's a pastoral, we talk about pastoral negligence or, or maybe even a, a plan <laughs> that's, that's pointing in the wrong direction. There's a pastoral failure to form folks properly in the front end of entering marriage and helping people to delay. There's a failure to make people delay marriage until they understand what it is. It's an irrevocably lifelong commitment. And then, so we set this problem up, then you have all these tragedies in marriage, and people want out. And then on the back end, annulment, the annulment process is already too easy. John Paul II, in a famous ad limited visit of U.S. bishops in the 90s, took him to school and said, look, the, the, the annulment rate in the United States has increased exponentially. What's going on here? You need, this is out of control, and you need to stop it. And, of course, it hasn't stopped. And now... It's not just local bishops and co their conferences where, that are suffering from this problem or maybe causing the problem, but now the universal church, or at least the pope and members of the synod are considering facilitating, or this commission he set up, facilitating the annulment process, make, taking it out of the ju juridical forum? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's got to have, I mean, a great deal to do. Self-selecting annulments? Yeah, but I mean, I don't know what it was like. You know, I was, I'm, I just celebrated my 11th anniversary so when i did my marriage prep you know we were forced <laughs> it's compulsory you know all this compulsory stuff you have to do check off the boxes but yeah, we yeah. had to go to this weekend thing you know where it was like a retreat it was an overnight thing friday to saturday or whatever and it's a diocesan thing and i mean i'm in the diocese of arlington it's known as a pretty good diocese throughout the country it's a place where a lot of people want to be but, I mean, there must have been 50, 60, 70 couples. I don't even know. It was a, it was a lot. A lot of couples there. Uh, actually, it wasn't overnight. We went there. We stayed until late. We, we went home and we came back again the next day. So, But, I mean, I think we were one of maybe three couples that weren't already admittedly living in sin together out of the entire huge cafeteria full of people. Right. Not you know, an uncommon situation. By yeah, way. and yeah. when I see that, and I see that they're just checking off the boxes too so that they can get this thing that they're already doing blessed. Right. I how I mean, when I hear Cardinal Casper say that the Pope says that he thinks that you know half of marriages are invalid, I don't even know what to make of it because my personal experience is that's how you're living, preparing for the sacrament. How can you be ready for this? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, that may be true, by the way, with, with the statement about annullable because of the poor formation. Um, but but I think it was Ed Peters, Dr. Ed Peters, canonist at uh, Sacred Heart Seminary, mm -hmm. and some others who said, but for crying out loud, first of all, Ed thinks it's not, it's not true that half of the marriages are annullable. He thinks that's a false statement. But even if it were true, Ed makes a further point that's really good, Dr. Peters, uh, namely – what in the world are you doing telling people this? Right. Pastorally, that's ham-handed and clunky. If not really just, just, just wrong, it's just plain wrong. What if we were to say, we think about half of the ordinations to the priesthood were invalid. Oh, my gosh. So then it's a 50-50 chance if my pastor, Father Joe Schmo, 
is actually a priest and if I've ever been receiving communion, let alone absolution in the sacrament. Yeah, no, that's a huge deal. Okay, that, 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 that on the level of the priesthood would cause profound um, insecurity mm-hmm. and it would be utterly destructive of the spiritual lies of the faithful to just say that without being sure of it. Now, if you're sure of it, then you do have to say, yeah, your priest is not a priest, and now you have to enter a parish where there is a priest right. and do a general confession, etc., and that, that could be fine. But if you're not sure and you say it, what purpose is that pastorally? I mean, Casper really is, I was about to say out of control, but I think he knows he's brilliant, and well, I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's really, if that's the case, then shame on him. Shame on Walter Casper. Um, that's horrid. And, and so now port it into the marriage context, not priesthood, and say half the marriages are invalid. My gosh, what's that going to do to people? The kind of insecurity that that brings upon families who hear this yeah. or kids, yeah. whatever. My gosh, this well, is I mean, How many stuff. people in difficult marriages are thinking right now, oh, you know what, maybe I can get out of this. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, there's, love is growing cold. It is. The world is, you know, it's rough. And, and so, yeah, the stakes are really high, and we've got to pray. So I think really in the end, Steve, it is okay. And, in fact, we are doing this verbally in the podcast now to say things like, I think it was a mistake. I'll just say this. I mean, I think it was a mistake for the Pope in a homily to say there's sin in Christ's soul. Right. I think it was a mistake for him to say in a homily that we boast in our sins. We don't boast in our sins. We boast in our weaknesses, as Paul says, right? Not in our sins. And I think it's a big mistake for the Pope to call this synod um, the extraordinary one. And of course, the ordinary synod, which we haven't spoken about, which is going to take place in 2015, was already scheduled way ahead of time not by Francis, and that's a synod on marriage in the family as well, continuing the theme. But this extraordinary synod, I think it was a mistake for him to call it, or if not a mistake to call it, at least a mistake to convene it under the rubrics with a specific issue among others, and some are are fine and not quite as horrible as this one, but the specific issue of contemplating uh, 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 giving communion to the divorced and quote-unquote remarried. It shouldn't even be a discussion. I think that's really bad. And and to do so under the rubrics of mercy and forgiveness, which is ersatz, not genuine, okay, and not in the tradition of our understanding of what those things mean, and also to impugn those verbally, as he's done, in in, uh, especially interviews like the famous, infamous Buenos Aires airplane interview, okay, Right. After World Youth Day. Mm-hmm. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? And we're too obsessed with abortion and contraception. Um, or to say that, you know, there's these people who are too, too locked into to dogma and, uh, and play against that, that love and mercy and forgiveness are somehow different than doctrine, different than dogma, and sometimes contrary to dogma, right? And, and so he's, a very di- he's just very divisive in, in, in certain respects, Pope mm. Francis is. And I think it's okay to say, hey, I love the guy. I really do. And love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, which it sometimes is. But the greatest expression of love, by the way, is the cross, and there's nothing warm and fuzzy about that. It's a profound act of will, of commitment to the other, of wanting to be united to them. And my desire to be united to Pope Francis and to love him, right, moves me to say, hey, I think these things are mistakes, I'm not revealing anything, nor are you in this interview, that hasn't already been stated publicly, except for our personal, or at least my personal objection 
uh, to some of these things. I think these are mistakes. I say that in love. It's okay to say that, right? Right. In fact, I'll tell tell you, and listeners can believe me or not, it's my love for him and others and Christ. And I'm a sinner, so I don't have great love. But whatever love I have is what's motivating me to say I think these things are mistakes. I don't want to hurt Pope Francis. I don't want him to fail. I don't want him to be bad. I don't want to impugn his character or just besmirch him or slander him. I want him to be good. And in many ways he is. But in certain respects, there's some mistakes. So it's love that that moves me. I bet it's probably the same for you, Steve, to say, hey, um, please don't do this. It's not this just love for hurting him. Jesus. It's, it's this love, is hurting us. Yeah, it's not this just love for him. Church. It's love for the church. Like you just, yeah, you just said it. I mean, jinx. But it's, <laughs> it's love for the church too. I, you know, we don't want to see the church led astray. We don't want to see the faithful led astray. We already know that we've got a massive crisis of faith. We want to be building people up, not giving them more, more scape clauses you know that they can just go do whatever it is that they want to do and you but steve it's not an escape and that's the whole myth not i know i'm not calling you out here i know i know but but the the myth is that it's an escape really it's a trap it's a trap yes thank you (laughs) it is it's a trap you're gonna get (laughs) caught and you can't get out and then you're remarried and have other kids and now what are you gonna do yeah and then when you come to your senses yeah you're you're up the creek and it's your it's over buddy you're tanked yeah don't nobody, do it. Nobody wants to wind up there. <laughs> but, a, I mean, you also have the added duty, and, and it, I mean, it's a duty. You've taken an oath to defend the faith. That's right. And to be faithful to the Pope and the teaching of the Pope. And I think I haven't, as we, thank you for asking me to articulate that earlier. The oath that I swore was to accept with faith teachings of revelation, to, to firmly hold an assent to definitive teachings, and to give um, obedient religious submission of will and intellect to even to non-definitive teachings. So I think I have fulfilled my oath, and if I haven't, um, I would be grateful to have that pointed out to me and, and be corrected gently, which I want to accept, and, and I'll, I'll ask to interview, be interviewed again by you and make a retraction if I need to. And I really do mean that, Steve. Yeah, I know you do. I um, know you do. I know you but, take uh, this very seriously. But but I do. It's a, it's an oath I've sworn, and uh, to get my the mandatum, uh, which is a participation not only in the bishop's teaching office and the local diocese here, our bishop Jeffrey Montfortin, who's a great guy, but also uh, <clears throat> to participate in a tiny way in Christ's mission to to save souls in our case by teaching the truth and refuting error. Okay, and refuting error. So I guess maybe I should have said this earlier on in the interview people would be less scandalized by some of the things that we've said and I've said. The more uh, they know church history and the more they know the drama of the papacy, which is one of great uh, success, holiness, and also tragedy and evil, okay? And I think, quantitatively speaking, there have been, been more good popes than bad. I think there's been a handful of popes who are saints and there's a handful of popes who are really, really wicked. And then most popes kind of fall in the middle, all right, not horrible and not great. Like many of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although maybe with popes, maybe there's been more who are great. I don't know for sure. But you be, you'll be less scandalized, if you're still listening at this point, you'll be less scandalized uh, <laughs> the more you find out about the history of the popes. There's a great article from Crisis Magazine years ago online, not that many years ago, on a, kind of a catalog or a funny little listing of, of really terrible popes, uh, 
I don't know if you've seen that. People have been spreading it around recently just to just to reread it. Um, Do you recall who the author was? It's called Let's Raise a Glass to the Bad Popes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Crisis Magazine published on June 28th, 2012. Cool. Well, I think you sent it to me. I'm going to have to check it out again. Anyway, uh, we're out of time. So <laughs> I think this is a good place to stop. I'd love to have you back, especially as the synod kind of unfolds and and we start to see what's coming out of it and kind of trying to put some arms around it and some sense, you know, to, to what's happening there. I think your your expertise in in this you know, in in matters of dogmatics and systematics, I think it would be very helpful to kinda of understand, okay, this is what the Synod did, this is what it didn't do. Um, this is what what our takeaway is. Is that something you'd be willing to do? Absolutely. I yeah, love I talking it, to you, Steve. That'd be great. All right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again. And by the uh, way, great work with one Peter Five. It's thank beautiful. you so much. Thank you so much. It's just lovely. Well, it's a we're real gonna, service. We're going to keep on keeping on and uh, keep on growing. I, mean, I I don't know if you heard the news, but we just passed the half million page view mark in under two months. So we're very happy with the fact that people are very interested in reading. Uh, and seeing what we have to, to say. So we're going to keep it going. But So Great. thank you for your time uh, today on the podcast, and uh, we'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks, Steve. God bless you. All right, take care. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of Signo Media, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter again at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel that we have provided you with something of value, please, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but helps us keep food on the table, and that's kind of important. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.